0: You're listening to the Co-Main Event podcast and now your hosts Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're tuned in to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts podcast. I'm your co-host from bleacherreport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining us as always from USA Today and MMA it's 2014 MMA Awards Journalist of the Year nominee Ben Folks. Ben, just just happy to be nominated, I assume.
1: You know, I'm, I I said that the first couple times. This time, I'm ready to kill a motherfucker and to win that award. If if I have to take Ariel Helwani out, or you know, if something unfortunate should happen to him. So be it. It's a dangerous world out there, Chad.
0: No one wants to end up a, what, like a three-time loser? Is that what we're looking at here?
1: I don't know. I don't even know anymore. I'm like the Buffalo Bills of this shit, basically.
0: And you have gone to the Fighters Only Awards Banquet before and sat there. Like a once. sucker on TV. Like like <laughs> the like the guy who doesn't win the Oscar on TV. He has to stand there to clap for Ariel Helwani. Hey, good job, all right. While he empties his pockets of his previous journalist of the year trophies.
1: And gives a fifteen minute speech.
0: Goes up there, grabs another one. This one I don't know what he's going even gonna do with this one. Maybe like put it in, in the work shed behind his house since he's got no room on the mantle.
1: In fairness, I think that the only reason I went to the first one, the only one I've been to, um, was because there was, like, an event the next day or something. But I will tell you this. The award show is kind of an awesome scene if you have a chance to go sometime because they have an open bar before that shit starts, and people are taking advantage of it. Especially, it gets together a lot of, like, the MMA people who, A, don't usually see each other, like, in a non fighting context and B, definitely don't see each other when they're not like in fight camp mode, when they are like free to, you know, maybe make use of an open bar. And so some kind of awesome and awkward shit happens. It's pretty great.
0: Uh and last year, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember correctly, Vitor Belfort got popped for elevated levels of testosterone. There you go. It... So word of caution out there, professional fighters. Yeah. If you plan to attend, especially if you're coming in from an international locale where the Nevada State Athletic Commission might not be able to find you, <laughs> uh, you know, maybe cycle off before it, you you touch down. It's like the BET Awards, man. Anything can happen out there. Now, wait was the was the was the MMA awards where John Jones and Daniel Cormier yes. is that the genesis of their beef too? I,
1: be, I believe it was. Uh, it's also where Diego Sanchez got up there drunk and gave an awesome. Oh, I remember that. Experience. Yeah, that was. <laughs> awesome. See, this is what I'm talking about. It's actually like if you have the opportunity to go to that, I actually do recommend it. Um, but if you're going to just be sad like I was, then maybe don't go
0: that recounting that we just did totally does make it seem like the source awards or something <laughs> like John Jones and Daniel Cormier getting into it in the car park or like yeah. out in the limousine line or wherever, wherever it was.
1: Yeah. Big Sugar going to run up on somebody. You never know.
0: Uh, well, it's about four days before Christmas, Ben. So I guess this is the special holiday episode of the Coman event podcast. Uh, the stockings are hung by the chimney with care and mm-hmm. all that.
1: Sure, sure they are.
0: Wow, look at you, coming out strong. I'm glad we got our Scrooge cast already. I thought we were going to have to bring Sir Nigel Longstock in here, maybe to be Scrooge, but just seeing you over there with the hatred in your eyes for the holidays.
1: Well, I, I got to say, though, I was, I'm was kind of impressed with your tree. That's some picture-perfect shit you got going on. See, we
0: didn't here. make the mistake of letting our child choose the tree, Th- although I will, I will say our child is happy with the tree that we have. She just was not considered a full voting partner in the decision <laughs> like you were at your house and ended up with, like, a skimpy-ass Charlie Brown tree.
1: You know, she saved us about 40 bucks, so I'm not mad.
0: Well, yeah, that, it runs in the family, I guess. <laughs> All right, three rounds as usual this week for the co-main event podcast. In round number one, you know, the interesting thing about CB Dalloway versus Leota Machida will be to see how Dalloway handles the step up in competition in his first UFC main. Oh, never mind. And in round number two. Don't know if you guys have heard but there might be some pending legal action against the UFC and around number 3, Rampage Jackson is back maybe unless a judge tells him he can't or he decides he'd rather film a movie or barring further Twitter outbursts against the UFC or another literal rampage behind the wheel of his monster truck or he just decides he doesn't want to or Bjorn Rebney gets starts a new MMA promotion I don't know. It's a fluid situation. All that plus tips for the well-rounded fight fan. Are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Mike Smith. He writes, Greetings, good sirs. Your discussions of the Reebok deal and CM Punk in episode 131 got me thinking that he's a prime example of the fundamental problem with determining sponsorship money based on rankings. Mr. Punk, much like Mr. Lesnar and Slice before him, will presumably be unranked upon his UFC de- debut, yet will likely attract a large number of viewers, so would Zufa claim that such guys observe, uh, deserve the same tiny ration of Reebok money as any other unranked newcomer? Get the fuck out of here. I'm all for meritocracies, but rankings, however legit... And independent they may be Are are the wrong metric for this um, Well first of all One ironic point about CM Punk Coming into the UFC at this point uh, in its history is that if you listen to the podcast that he did with Colt Cabana like a week before he announced his eventual UFC signings, one of the things that he cited as an issue between him and his former employers at WWE were that uh, since he's a big fan of mixed martial arts fighting, he saw all of these fighters with a bunch of sponsors on their trunks and actually said on the podcast that MMA fighters, quote unquote, make big bucks from sponsorships, which make you, makes you wonder if maybe he's not as connected as we thought thought he was uh but so he brought that idea to vince mcmahon and he wanted to start wearing fight shorts in the ufc so he could have sponsors on there uh and the and uh the wwe told him no that he couldn't do that huh. and then that? and then a year later they let brock lesnar do it because he came back to wwe and he has sponsors on his fight shorts etc etc so just a sort of an ironic note there that that uh cm bunk was pissed about not being able to have sponsors on his trunks and and now Presumably, he won't be able to have sponsors on his trunks in the UFC. Also, though, in response to Mike Smith, I guess I would say, I think if I had to guess that Mr. Brooks, now a major motion picture starring Kevin Costner, by the way, uh, is going to be pretty well taken care of, regardless of what happens with the Reebok money. In fact, I would think that having CM Punk come to the UFC would be one of the primary ways you would monetize that would be perhaps to... Uh, create a CM Punk signature line of Reebok clothing. He seems like one there of the you dudes go. you could probably sell some shirts for, regardless of, you know, wh- when he fights or, or how he does. But uh, I think that in theory, this idea about rankings uh, and newcomers coming in, uh, you know, it would be bad to paint with a with the same brush. Guys like CM Punk and other guys who are just debuting in the UFC, but at the same time. Uh, I think they're going to make it work, worth his while somehow.
1: Right. Well, and I don't think he'll even really notice that much, not only because he'll be making enough money, as you say, but also it's not like he's had this experience that a lot of other guys have had of being in the UFC and making a bunch of money from sponsors and then having that go away. Like, he'll probably come into the UFC in the Reebok era, so he won't. it's not like he'll really notice a change. I wonder how it's going to affect those guys who are, who are used to getting you know big money, like six-figure payouts from their sponsors – And now that goes away. And if you're not, you're going to be, you're going to easily be able to see, am I making as much or more now with Reebok than I was in sponsors? And if not, then how are they not going to be pissed? And how are they not going to talk about that? I mean, that's going to be really revealing to know because they know what they're getting from sponsors right now. Like, they're going to be able to tell if there's a huge difference. And it's going to be different for different guys, I'm sure. But it's hard for me to think that uh, down the line that the Reebok money is going to be able to completely replace everybody's sponsorship money.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens to the people in the middle. You know what I mean? Because, like... The guys, the the men and women at the top of the card, I think stand to probably lose some money from sponsorships, but they are also going to get these opportunities to make that money back, whether it be with like a signature fight line or let's face it, if you're Ronda Rousey or John Jones or Chris Weidman, your uh, additional monetization opportunities are more. They are more plentiful, right? Well, like, yeah, and
1: if you're Bad Boy sponsoring Chris Weidman, even if you can't get on his shorts and and on there for fight night, it's probably still worthwhile to to keep him on your payroll. Right. So
0: we have this notion that the people at the top of the card will be okay. Uh, the people at the very bottom of the card, I would think, probably stand to make some more money because I can't imagine if you were fighting on the FightPass.com at a show in in uh, Tulsa uh, and it was your first UFC show. I bet you're not. I bet you're not making that much money from sponsorships. So the share of Reebok money, for all we know, could be more than what you would get otherwise.
1: Well, especially for those guys because one of the things I heard from a bunch of managers when I was working on my story about how the Reebok deal is going to affect them was how for those lower down guys who are on like Fight Pass and stuff like that, managers basically courting the same few sponsors like Dynamic Faster and those people to, to get uh, you know at least a little bit of money for the guy. And they were just driving the prices down on each other to the point where it got kind of absurd where like, hey, if you had 400 bucks – you know, as as one manager who will not be named put it, uh, other guys are out there willing to open up their butthole for five hundred bucks. So wow, you know, yeah. ouch, <laughs> yeah. So you know, they were just kind of drove those prices down so low on each other that uh, those guys, I think, will see it. Uh, and you're right, though. I think yeah. it's somewhere, like if you're like ranked number four or something, uh, or you're ranked number six, like in a pretty crowded division. Um, then that's where you might rightly wonder, like, hey, wait a minute. Am I getting screwed here? Well,
0: yeah. And I mean, maybe not even guys who are ranked that high. I just wonder about like kind of middle of the pack guys that might be making 15 and 15, uh, to show and win and are fighting twice a year, but are kind of cobbling together a living off making an additional like 10 or $20,000 a year on sponsors. You know, like, uh, it, are they going to get that money back? And if they don't, like that's going to be a significant like blow to their, Uh, to their lifestyle or their ability to make it, you know, because if you're pulling down, you know, maybe 40 grand or something after taxes uh, and and you were bringing home an additional 20 or 30 grand in sponsorships a year, like that's a big difference. Big difference. Big difference.
1: You know, uh, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to make a crazy wild prediction. uh, This being the end of the year and all that. I'm going to say by the time this Reebok thing actually launches in July of 2015, uh, the payout system, does not look like what the UFC has told us is going to be. I'm going to say that they're, they're going to get so much pushback on this stuff between now and then, they're going to have to come up with something else.
0: That's a pretty safe wager, I would think. And I think that's a good segue to our next question from Kent Carter, who writes, so the MMA gods erupted their usual tomfuckery this year. However, they've decided they're going to give you each a Christmas gift. What are you asking for, Dundas and folks? Um, ben, MMA-related, well, if you could get one gift... From the MMA gods, no matter how silly or outlandish, what would you get next year?
1: Every champion remains healthy enough to defend his or her title at least twice in the calendar
0: year. Wow, that's a good one. Boom. That's a big time one.
1: Well, I mean, it's it's technically one thing, although I found a way to ask for a bunch of things. It's like you're the genie who gave me one wish, and I asked for a hundred more wishes.
0: What now, genie? I just outsmarted you. That is a good one. See, that that makes me feel like I was a little bit... Uh, I set my set the bar too low when I decided to ask that we could all stop pretending like we don't like wrestling. That we could that we could put the the Which mix kind of back in mixed martial arts. Which the, kind of the, wrestling? The legitimate amateur wrestling that we saw from a guy like Patrick Cummins this past weekend.
1: Yeah, you the, got a kick out of that one.
0: I like that fight. You know, I like that stuff. I'm into the I like mixed martial arts. I'm not just here to watch the dudes go out there and 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 display their amateur boxing capabilities for 15 minutes, which I often find to be even more boring than a wrestling match. So I'm into it, man. I wish we would all stop pretending like like it sucks. I wish that part of the culture would go away.
1: What if pretending like it sucks, though, is part of what people enjoy about it
0: to each his own, man? Okay. Next question comes from Trevor in Toronto. He writes, Eric Silva dispatched Mike Rhodes in a few minutes. He has nine exclamation point fights in the UFC and has alternated wins and losses throughout that span. Uh, I see something in this guy, but he loses the big fights, but at the same time makes them losses look damn good. Now that he's training in the U.S. full time, an addendum to this, Trevor in Toronto wrote us back to say uh, he couldn't confirm that. That he's training in the UFC. Oh, the I appreciate time. him fact checking so, yeah, himself. Yeah, he just go out fact check his. his uh his letter uh which we seems like a
1: correct him on a fact
0: which seems like a good move do you guys think this guy can make moves in the jam packed welterweight division uh yeah eric silva is one of those dudes that we've been kind of waiting to break out for a while uh it seemed like he got a good chance when he went up against Mac, matt brown uh but didn't didn't come out again on the winning end of that one uh obviously he looked good against mike rhodes this past weekend but is he one of these dudes now that like uh is just good enough to beat kind of the journeymen and the nobodies, but at the same time is never going to really uh, uh, make good on what we thought was his tremendous potential to begin with.
1: Yeah, it's it's tough because, you know, he does really look good. Like He, he looks, looks good
0: getting off the bus. He
1: looks good getting off the bus. And when he's up against a guy like a Mike Rhodes, somebody who he's just like outmatches, he can tear through him, and, and uh, or uh, his fight with Sato uh, back in February where, I mean, that was another one where it just looked like a kind of a blatant mismatch. And then he goes out there and runs through the guy and yay, everybody gets to jump up and down and cheer and Brazil and everything. And it's a good fun time uh watching the, the guy just demolish somebody. But then when he gets into a tougher fight like Matt Brown or Dung Hyun Kim, uh, he doesn't do so well. I mean, you know, he, he does do all right, but then ends up losing. Or And even I would give him a little bit of a pass because you can say the thing about how he's winning one and losing one. But that one, uh, one of his losses was that disqualification to Carlo Prater, uh, where he, like, the rare fighter to be called for punches to the back of the head, when really it was the same scenario everybody ends up in where you got a guy hurt and you're just punching him everywhere and a few of them land to the back of the head and, you know, he's like the only guy to get disqualified or something like that. So I get cut in a little slack there, but yeah, I mean, right now you look at his record, and I mean, who would you say his his best win comes against? Jason High?
0: Yeah, probably. I mean, it would be either him or Charlie Brenneman, and what we know now of Charlie yeah. Brenneman that Jason High. Yeah. Hey, so okay, we'll just so, say Jason High. Uh,
1: I mean, you. He's got to make that jump at some point, right, where every time the UFC puts him up against somebody tougher, he doesn't pass that test, and then they give him another easy one, and he knocks it out of the park. Like He's got to change that pattern. I mean, I'd like to think he can because he seems to have a ton of talent, but... There must be something going on here.
0: Yeah, and let's be uh, clear that this is a prolonged pattern, too. Even if you take that Carlo Prater DQ loss out of the equation, that was all the way back in the beginning of 2012. Since then, he beat Charlie Brenneman but then lost to John Fitch. That was a hell of a fight, uh, Which, in retrospect, is kind of a big step up in competition. Then he beats Jason High. Then he loses to Don Young-Kim. Then he beats Takanori Sato but loses to Matt Brown and then comes back to beat Mike Rhodes. Uh, so... If history is any indication, don't bet on Eric Silva in his next fight. If you recognize the name yeah. of the person he's put up if you against, fight
1: somebody with a Wikipedia page. Be careful.
0: Uh, but I mean, he's been doing this for a long time now. I think we should point out, obviously, that the dude is, or also that the dude is thirty years old now. So, like, if you're going to continue to consider him a prospect, like uh, he's getting a little bit long in the tooth. Uh, to be considered like a rated rookie, uh, as they used to call him, I think back in the Donruss days of, of baseball cards.
1: Ooh, wow. Dating yourself there. Oh, I
0: used to have some rated rookies I back, bet in, you back in those days. I'm not sure how many of those guys panned out though. Uh, so yeah, if you're Eric Silva and you're gonna make a move, I think now would be the time. Uh, and maybe if, if Trevor in Toronto's reporting is correct and he has moved to a big time camp in the US, that, that would be a good start. I don't know. Yeah. Uh last question this week comes to us from Michael Jansen. He writes in 2013 the Jones Gus fight was the best title fight in all of MMA, but which one was the best title fight of 2014? Please discuss. Uh you know, I was thinking about this Ben after we got this question and even though I think we all regard 2014 to be a pretty down year in mixed martial arts, uh perhaps I was thinking about this also, perhaps the worst year ever? Like have we have we ever had a year that conspired to be uh, as kind of shitty all the way around as 2014 was because not only did we get a glut of injuries and like way too many shows uh, from the UFC, but we also got like a shitload of high profile arrests. It just seemed like,
1: yeah, lots,
0: year. lots of stuff that we couldn't have previously anticipated went wrong this year. Uh, and I don't know if there, that there's ever been a year uh that's quite been its equal in, in that regard. Uh, But at the same time, even though we did have all this kind of negative stuff happen, there were some awesome title fights this year. Like uh, Chris Weidman Machida was awesome. Uh, Both of the Robbie Lawler uh, uh, Johnny Hendricks fights were pretty awesome. Although the first one I think was clearly better and would probably be my choice as fight of the year if we were going to do that. Uh, But uh, you know Jose Aldo and Chad Mendes was pretty awesome. You had T J Dillashaw pretty much come out of nowhere uh, to to. Dust up Henning Barrow. So like a lot of a lot of good stuff going on. Michael Chandler and Will Brooks a couple of times over in Bellator. Um, So, yeah, man, a lot of good fights. I would say that my pick for the best one, though, was was Robbie Lawler against Johnny Hendricks one. uh, And now we've seen those guys fight 10 rounds. We might get five more. I'm still not sure which one of them is the better fighter. Yeah.
1: You know, I was trying to choose between uh, Machida and Weidman and uh, Jose Aldo and Chad Mendes. Uh, and I find that a tough choice to make. But those, I, you know, screw it. I'll say Aldo and Mendez. That was the best title fight of the year.
0: Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question or comment or concern that you want to air to the Co Main Event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You can email the podcast by going to our website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right hand corner of the, of the screen that says. Interestingly enough, email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you might as well sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to kind of catch you up on all the news and notes that we miss uh, from one one Monday to the next between the times that we uh, record the podcast. Are we doing the Breakfast of Champions this week? Sure, we are. Your, your travel schedule will not disrupt the the Breakfast of Champions. I'm not
1: traveling until uh, next week. Okay. going to go do do a little skiing. So we'll be good. Yeah. Until next week. Until next week. But
0: we are going to do a show next week.
1: Yes. Okay. If we can do it before I have to go skiing.
0: Before I have to go skiing. See, if I did that, you would make so much mockery of me on the podcast. That's true. Uh, But I'm just going to be a good friend and let you go on with your bad self, go skiing with your wife.
1: Look at you being such a good friend right now. I'm not even going to
0: bring it up on the show. That's nice. As for right now, though, we're going to get started with round number one. Then matchmakers tabbed Lyoto Machida as about a 6-1 to one favorite over C.B. Dalloway in the final UFC fight of 2014, the main event of Fight Night 58 down there in Brazil. Uh, and it seemed like the odds makers had this one dialed in. Yeah. Because
1: Isn't it weird how the people who actually stand to lose or gain money if they're wrong rather than just be embarrassed by their picks on the internet uh, sometimes know what the hell they're talking about?
0: You think there's some advanced metrics being had back Behind the scenes I don't even
1: think we know I don't even think we could possibly Wrap our brains around the kind of advanced metrics
0: Or is there just an old guy With a sharpie tucked behind his ear And like a floppy fedora
1: Or one of those green visors Yes, a guy wear. wearing
0: a green visor And yeah. like garters around his elbows
1: Yeah, he's in a studio apartment above a bar in Queens Just figuring all this shit out There's like
0: 50 phones on the table He gets a call and he's like Ah, turns out C.B. Dalloway's girlfriend is pregnant <laughs> The smart money's on my this weekend. Why does he talk like that? Because yeah, it's the 30s. It's okay. the 1930s. All That's right. how people talked back then. Well, uh, that guy knew the hell he was talking yes, about. he did, because it took Lyoto Machida all of two kicks to end the night of C.B. Dalloway, uh, and really, goddammit, he only needed one, because the first one was a low kick. The second one landed right under the right elbow of C.B. Dalloway and put him on pause for just long enough for Machida to blitz him with strikes, collapsed against the cage, referee called things off uh, I guess just going to show that even though he's he's getting on in years a little bit and now he's made this drop down to middleweight uh, Lyoto Machida is still one of the best fighters in whichever division he chooses to fight
1: you know if this were like an 80s action movie if this were like blood sport or some shit and Leota Machida was one of the vaguely bad guys he wouldn't have even done the follow up blitz with strikes he would have just kicked him in the body looked at him for a second and then like used like his index finger on CB Dalloway's forehead and just kind of pushed him over like on to the ground and then turn around and sneered at the crowd and it would have been awesome that I mean he seemed like he probably could have done that if he'd wanted to
0: uh I guess I mean wouldn't you say though that Leoto Machida seems more like the good guy though like I, I wouldn't tab Leoto Machida as like the bad guy in a movie even you know especially now that he's he's lost the beard he's cleanly shorn
1: well no I mean I'd go goatee Machida evil Machida okay and then he does that yeah yeah
0: because to me he seems more like a Danny LaRusso type
1: I mean, that's, that's Chris Weidman. Chris Weidman comes in there and then, uh, he, he beats up Machida and then he goes to the club afterwards. You know right.
0: what I'm saying? Yeah. No, I hear you. Uh, kind of a heartbreak. Strong but-
1: Island comes out in, uh, February. So let's say February, 2015.
0: That's a good, actually a good title for a movie about Chris Weidman.
1: Uh just send the royalties to my house.
0: This is kind of a heartbreaker, right? For for CB Dolloway. we had the story from uh, Stephen Morocco over at MMA Junkie this week uh, about how they called CB Dolloway to come to the hashtag The Time Is Now press conference, uh, which frankly was noticeable at the time that they threw him up on stage with all these like UFC champions. Yeah,
1: and even he looked like, what am I doing here?
0: Yeah, nobody asked him a question, and like there were some kind of like. I guess, uh, self-aware quotes from C.B. Dalloway in that in that story by Morocco where he talked about how he, he wasn't a high-profile fighter yet, but this was his chance. Uh, it's tough to imagine this one going any worse for him.
1: Yeah. And, you know, this was his chance. And, I I mean, people criticize his booking afterwards, especially, like, right after it happened and everybody's a genius and can figure out, like, oh, of course, Ludo L- L- Machida puts him away in 62 seconds. But this one made sense to me because, as we talked about before on the show, you know, hey... If you're CB Dolloway, if you're, if you're the blue blood, Clarence Byron, this is your chance, right? This is it. Like, this is the opportunity to jump up and show that you can be somebody. Um, and it doesn't really knock like a top contender off of the list, uh, since Leona Machida is just coming off that, that loss to the champion. So, you know, you, you give CB Dolloway a chance to prove that he's somebody other than the person we all assumed he was. And then you also give Leona Machita basically a chance to show out and, then get us interested in him seeing him fight another contender, like Luke Rockhold. And in that way, I mean, it kind of works either way, right? And what happened was Leo Machida goes out there, you know, makes short work of C.B. Dalloway, and then everybody's suddenly like, oh, Luke Rockhold wants wants a piece of Machida, huh? Now there's a number one contender's fight. Like, it's actually pretty smart.
0: Yeah, no, and you're right. This was a, the perfect litmus test for CB Dalloway, I think I think we said last week and and if it hadn't been for that controversial uh, split decision loss to Tim Boach, uh a little while ago, he would have come in, you know, on a five-fight win streak, which, you know, if you have a if you have five wins in the in a row in the UFC, that's nothing to sneeze at. Uh, I didn't think that there was a case to be made that he didn't deserve this fight. I just think that when people looked at the booking, you know, knowing that Machida has been at the top for a long time in two different divisions. And I think it was more like, oh, he's fighting CB Dalloway. Really? Like there was. And like we said last week, I think we had this idea that CB Dalloway was a known commodity that he just because he's been around for so long, we, we think we know what he's capable of. Um, but at the same time, you're right. This was the fight that if he won it, I don't think we would be able to deny him a spot among the 185 pound elite. Uh, and so this was kind of like his opportunity to, to prove that he belonged there. Uh, and, and it, it went terribly for him. Like, I believe, you know, the, the, probably the popular view coming out of this fight is like, uh, CB Dalway is a middle of the pack welter or middleweight and and was made to look like exactly what he is by a guy who belongs among the best.
1: he is who we thought he was, yes that 's what you 're saying
0: thank you Dennis green uh, uh, but you 're right, I think that now we get into some fun stuff here in the middleweight division. Uh, leota Machida, he would said he would wait for the boss Dana White, to tell him what was next during his post fight interview with John Annick always a popular uh, move and he didn't have to wait very long at all because Luke Rockhold uh, did the ever popular congratulations slash challenge tweet uh which is a lot to get done in 140 characters as far as i'm concerned uh especially when you have to put at dana white in yeah, there
1: i think he still had some left over yeah
0: <laughs> yeah he he did have he could some. have
1: included a link to his score page if he'd wanted to
0: and uh then dana white gets back to him immediately basically says i'm down bro uh and that he's going to give him a call this week so you know all indications seem to be pointing toward Luke Rockhold versus Leoto Machida, which I think is something that nobody would be mad about. Um, and it, it it has the potential to kind of spice up the middleweight division where uh, your champion Chris Weidman, uh, before he takes the time off to go film Strong Island, is going to fight Vitor Belfort in February. And on the same card, you have what I think is is a presumed number one to contender fight between Jacare Souza and Yoel Romero. Uh but now I think this, this Leoto Machida Luke Rockhold fight, if it does indeed go down, uh it could spice things up a little bit, especially if uh, you know, something unforeseen happens and Vitor Belfort walks out of UFC what is it, UFC one eighty four uh with the with the strap, like then I think game on for everybody. It could you could see Leoto Machida fight for the title again pretty soon if Chris Weidman is no longer the champion.
1: Yeah, well and you know something I think that a lot of people are still planning a like- in the back of their minds, a little bit of uh, USC 184 contingency plans. Like, hey, maybe if something weird happens and uh, Vitor Belfort isn't able to make that date, you know what I'm saying? I maybe I have no idea what he, you could possibly
0: runs, be inferring right now.
1: Run, maybe he shows up at an award show and runs into another uh, sudden... Oh, God,
0: it's all happening again!
1: <laughs> unfortunate testing scenario. Uh, I know Luke Rockhold has talked about you know, maybe keeping himself... Uh, close enough to fight shape to be ready for something like that. So who knows? I mean, it is starting to look like the middleweight division is getting very, very interesting right now. You have a whole lot of guys who, uh, right now, it just seems like it's only a matter of figuring out the order in which they get title shots, uh, which is always the, the preferable scenario. I mean, I think you look down at, like, bantamweight, right? And we saw Henan Brow, the monster. He goes out there and beats Mitch Gagnon. He's kind of in a similar uh, situation as de Machida when you think about it. Former champ trying to get back there, except that the UFC's mad at him, so he has that extra little wrinkle added to it. And he fights also a guy who everybody expects him to beat, a guy lower down on the ranks, um, and doesn't show out quite as much. I mean, gets the win, looks good. You know, definitely wasn't losing at any point in that fight. Although it did seem a little bit tougher, or at least took longer than most of us thought it would. Uh, And now he's sitting around going, okay. What's it going to take? I want to shut up T.J. C- C. Dillashaw's mouth. Uh, and it looks like, okay, you're going to have to wait around a little bit. And there's not even that much else going on in the bantamweight division.
0: Yeah, not only do we have a stacked contender list right now at middleweight, but it's also a totally awesome rogues gallery. Like, uh, we talked about a movie for Chris Weidman, man, I would watch an ensemble cast action film starring Jacare Souza, Vitor Belfort, Leoto Machida, Luke Rockhold, Yoel Romero, Tim Kennedy, and Gegard Mousasi any day of the week, especially if there was a cameo appearance from Anderson Silva in there, and special guest star Michael Bisping as the captain. Oh,
1: wow. See, I was just like, as soon as you said Yoel Romero, I feel like I can picture the opening credit scene of like a sitcom, like some kind of love boat type shit where, you know, you, you pan to Yoel to Romero, he's sitting at the bar chatting up a few ladies, wearing his little newsboy cap and, a, and a, a, a nice vest and tie ensemble, and he turns and gives you a knowing smile at the camera. Oh, Yoel, you cad, you.
0: Right. Well, I, I was going to say, with Yoel Romero out there, you know who's going to be cast as the Murdoch character, right? <laughs> and then you got, uh, you got Gegard Musasi basically doubling as Eeyore. Like, you know, he's going to be gloom and doom all the time. But still somehow lovable. God, you know, we should have Hollywood producers on speed dial because... I assume they listen to the podcast. Yeah, it's just a a fountain of awesome ideas over here. Ben, we're going to do tips for the well-rounded fight fan this week Uh, before we move on to round number two. This was your idea, so you might as well lay it on us first. What is your tip for the well-rounded fight fan?
1: Well, you know that this was my idea because, uh, you know, Christmas is this week. Yeah. And so... Yes, it is. I, I felt like... You know, this would be something like if we, if our podcast listeners were actually in our families and we were like going to go to their house for Christmas, this is what we would get them. Um, But we're not going to do that. So they will have to buy it for themselves and pretend it came from us. Maybe even wrap it up if it makes you feel better. Um, But that being said, my pick for tips for a well-rounded fight fan is the novel Sneaky People by Thomas Berger.
0: You sure you haven't done that one before? Or did you just talk about it on Twitter?
1: I think I just talked about it on Twitter, and right. I talked about it to you. Edward. Yeah,
0: I haven't read it yet, but you say it's very good. It's by the guy who wrote Little Big Man, which is, my da- is. one of my dad's favorite books. Yeah,
1: and you know now I'm reading Little Big Man because everybody talks about that one. Sneaky People, actually, I've read three of this guy's books now. Uh, Sneaky People is the best one. A weird kind of crime novel set like in the 30s or 40s or some shit. Uh, really, really well done. Really... Uh, funny and interesting and weird and awesome. And you should buy it for yourself and pretend I gave it to you for Christmas.
0: If you were in my family, what you would be getting for Christmas would be a tiny mouse that sleeps in kind of like a giant matchbox. Because you would be a two-year-old girl, and that's would would be what I would get you for Christmas.
1: You're not going to get me that anyway, because that sounds kind of awesome.
0: Well, I don't want to spoil it for you, man. Okay. There All could right. be something under the tree for you over there. Um, you did a weird crime novel. I'm also going to do a weird crime novel for my tips for the well-rounded fight fan. I'm going to do The Plowman by Kim Zupan, a local author here in Missoula. Uh, I just read it. It's awesome. It's very well written. It's a kind of a weird story about a guy who works the graveyard shift at like a rural Montana uh, jail. And he develops a very strange kind of friendship relationship with an old man who's awaiting trial for murder. Uh, and it's just, it's wonderful. It's super good. I enjoyed the heck out of it. Um, one of my favorite books of the year. So The Plow Men by Kim Zupan. We'll put links to this stuff up on the uh, on the list for tips for the well-rounded fight fan, which we keep somewhat curated over yeah. on comainevent.com. It so. looks like
1: I'm looking at it right now. looks like the last one I recommended was The Bone Clocks by David Mitchell, which several people on Twitter told me that they read and enjoyed. So there.
0: It's possible my wife is getting that for Christmas, too. I don't know.
1: It's possible, huh? Yeah. I mean, it's safe. It's not like our wives are going to listen to this show. No, heck no. It's totally safe.
0: Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We're going to move on and get started with round number two.
1: Chad, last week, Kung Lee, John Fitch, Nate Corey, and some fancy pants big shot lawyers filed suit against Zufa, the parent company of the UFC, uh, alleging some, some antitrust claims, uh, saying that the, the UFC is basically operating an illegal monopoly uh, and unlawfully stifling competition in the mixed martial arts world. Um, now, I don't want to get too granular here uh, in our discussion. But have you spoken to your wife to find out how this is going to go so that we can just stop paying attention to it now?
0: A just little, tell her to make a prediction a little bit. Uh, I was going to actually have her read the filing document, but then I realized it was 70 pages long. Uh, my wife, and all, she actually
1: has work to do. Yes, my wife fuck around on the internet does, all day like we do does
0: a ton of of work at her actual job as an attorney. So I didn't want to be like, have her come home and be like, hey, welcome home. Here's a 70-page document for you to read. So she hasn't read that. I know she's interested uh, in the, the the idea of this antitrust case against the uh, the uh, uh, UFC. Um, and she kind of echoed the same stuff that, that uh, the Sports Illustrated legal analyst uh, wrote. What's that guy's name? I keep forgetting. Yeah, um, I don't know. Yeah, if, we, if you should go read Bill. it if you, if you haven't. The, uh, it's the best McClain. recap of the. Stop it! It's the best recap of the uh, of the the filing that I've read yet. Um, and she talked about this in, in my conversation with her, and, and it's in the the SI story. That being that, kind of one of the more interesting things about this lawsuit is that the fighters don't necessarily have to win to uh, make it worth their while, um, as long as the the lawsuit itself survives an initial motion to dismiss from, from the UFC, which we assume will be coming. Uh, they'll go into uh, the discovery phase of the litigation. And during that phase, a judge could potentially uh, compel the UFC to turn over, some or all of its financial information which would be kind of the holy grail for a lot of people who've been questioning the the company's business practices uh you know throughout Zufa's tenure as as the owner over there um and so that could be a huge deal and uh it it could also be uh you know uh, uh give the give the UFC kind of uh a, a reason to settle the case yeah. before they would have to, to turn over that, that information. And if they settled the case, it would presumably come with a lot of uh concessions about what, what could be in the, in a standard UFC fight contract and stuff like that. So that could be good for fighters. Um, in terms of the actual overall lawsuit, I think it's going to be pretty hard to, to win the whole thing. I think it's going to be pretty hard, uh, to win the idea that the UFC is a complete monopoly, but, uh, you know, you can, the way that these things work, you can win part of, you You know, you don't have to necessarily prove that the UFC's a uh, monopoly and win 100% of the case. You could get like a partial verdict and, and a judge could go through the UFC contract and say, this is, this is legal and this isn't. So, uh, a lot of different stuff could happen.
1: Yeah. Michael McCann, by the way, is the oh, sports the illustrator. Sports, so I was, yeah. I was basically right. Uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, you were close. <laughs> you really ballparked that one. It's
1: weird because I felt like when, when people heard like, Oh, a bunch of fighters are, are going to sue the UFC. And everybody was like, what? That sounds huge. That sounds like some some game changer shit, as everybody likes to say. And then when we found out, like, it's John Fitch, Nate Corey, and Kung Lee, everybody was like, oh, okay, well, all right. I mean, I was hoping for Anderson Silva, but oh, okay, I'll, t- I'll take that. And then when it was like, yeah, and it's for operating an illegal monopoly, then it was kind of like, all right, wait a minute, what? Like... I think that a lot of people like there's a lot of stuff in those UFC contracts that people have questioned for a long time. Like this, the the extent to which they seem to offer so many protections for the UFC and so few protections for the fighters. Like a contract that seems to only benefit one side. Um, and I think that there's been so much speculation about that. That then when somebody comes out with this lawsuit about something completely different, everybody's kind of like, well, I don't know. Maybe the contract will get looked at. Maybe a judge will sit down and, and look at this contract and start to talk about some of this stuff. Because you're right, it does seem like – I mean and obviously we're not antitrust law experts by any means. But when you've got one guy on, in the lawsuit, one of the plaintiffs who works for a competitor right now and then another guy who seems like he's hoping he'll get released so he can go work for a different competitor, like it seems a little bit hard to make the, the monopoly claim, doesn't it?
0: Uh, Yeah, I think that's going to be a a tough one to prove. Uh, But like I said, you don't necessarily need to to prove that to to have some good stuff come out of the lawsuit. And I mean, the devil is going to be in the details. Clearly like, uh, I'm sure from the Zufa side of things, you're going to hear an awful lot about the 5 billion in cash that were led to believe that, that Scott Coker sleeps on at night. Uh, and you're going to hear a lot about Viacom and, and, uh, you know, competition in the marketplace and stuff like that. And it'll ultimately be up to a judge to decide, uh, if that stuff really represents adequate competition, um, and you know one of the hard things about it is that we we heard just a few years ago that the u f c had already been under investigation uh f- by the feds and that they had basically been cleared uh that that it had been determined that it was not a monopoly i think that that happened pre strike force buyout though uh could be wrong about that but um so, we definitely have a, a changed marketplace, and, uh, it's just gonna be the, you know, we're gonna have to figure out, the judge is gonna have to figure out if, if Bellator and World Series of Fighting and, and 1FC, uh, constitute like actual competition in the marketplace, which in theory they do, but I think in practice we all know that they don't actually at this point.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that's interesting so far is the real lack of any reaction from the UFC. Like, kind of posted that, that statement on the website, just being like, yeah, you know. Their reactions
0: are the best. I love them. They're always like one sentence and it's just like. Says nothing.
1: Yeah, just basically like don't bother calling us about this kind of thing. And then you know, usually this would be the kind of thing where the next at the next event, you know, Dana White would get up there at the the press conference. People would either you know kind of bite their tongues on it at first and wait for the scrum to sit down there and really dig in. It, and then he'd go on. A, he'd start out by saying that he doesn't really want to talk about it, and then go on a twenty minute tirade about it, and it right. would be awesome. Uh, but. He's not really doing that anymore. For one thing, you don't even see him at like the press conference for like this one in Brazil, he wasn't at. Uh UFC uh 181, uh he he wasn't at that one either. So, you know, you just you don't get as much face time with him now, and then even when he does go and do the press conferences like he did the press conference for the last one on Fox, um doesn't do the scrum stuff anymore. So it's like we get a lot less reaction from Dana White. It seems like he's just kind of decided like screw the media, I'll just do my download thing on uh, ufc.com where I can say what I want and like have final say over the editing and shit like
0: that. Ah, uh, which frankly I'm all for because I feel like one of the things in 2014 uh that that kind of got under my skin was our ubiquitous access to Dana White at all times. Like one of the things about doing 46 fight shows a year where there's a uh, show every single weekend is that you are hearing from Dana White every single day. It seems like on a
1: variety of topics, if we're
0: going to get a little less Dana White in our lives, I'm not going to complain about that. I also don't think it seems like a coincidence that there are photographs of him holding uh, a headstone of styrofoam gravestone with the names of his competitors on it included in this lawsuit filing, and that the u f c you know around the same time uh, would think let 's scale back this guy 's public uh uh profile a little bit uh also kind of ironic that some of your former and current employees are- fi- filing a lawsuit. Uh, that basically comes down to them saying you're keeping all the money and they're not getting any. And literally during the press conference to announce the filing, Dana white is tweeting photographs from his vacation at a private Island, like in Fiji or something like that. (laughs) I want to read this listener mail question that we got from Casey comstock because we didn't use it during listener mail, but I think it makes a good point. Um, He writes, I've been wondering something about the UFC lawsuit and haven't heard it discussed anywhere else. Are there any legal protections for UFC fighters who end up joining the lawsuit? In other words, if an active UFC fighter joins the lawsuit, can Dana White fire them for some sort of breach of contract? Or would the fighter enjoy protections against retribution similar to that of a whistleblower? If there's some protection, I'd be willing to bet several ranked fighters would be more willing to join the suit. If not, most fighters would probably be too scared to sign on. Thoughts. Now, see, that's an interesting undercurrent to this whole thing, because I think that Casey Comstock uh kind of hit the nail on the head for what the popular discussion is right now. And that is, are any UFC fighters going to join this lawsuit or will they be too scared? Yeah, well, you know, and that's...
1: uh it seems like we're in this weird situation with that because every time something like this happens where either somebody comes out and criticizes the UFC and the pay structure or how they treat fighters or whatever or something like really official like this lawsuit, people look at who's involved and be like, oh, but it's just a bunch of disgruntled guys who are washed out of the UFC and are upset about it, couldn't hack it in the UFC, whatever, um, and they're the ones talking. And really what we don't think about is that – well. That could be because the guys who are still in the UFC and hoping to stay there are scared to speak up. And so then we only hear from them once like their worst-case scenario kind of comes true. And by then, the fact that it came true is the thing that's used to discredit them. So, you know, in uh, Fox, some show on Fox or maybe even just like some internet show that Fox Sports does or something. I just saw the clip. I saw it through Bloody Elbow and it was a little video that they put out on on Twitter. And it was, you know, their host, uh, this woman talking about, oh, you know, the UFC – sued by a bunch of fighters. Here we have UFC heavyweight Brendan Schaub, a current UFC fighter here to break down the complaints. And the, the gag basically in this like really short video was just like when they turn it over to Brendan, I'm like, so what do you think, Brendan, about this lawsuit? And he's just like, nope, and just like kind of walks off. Um. And so, wait, you're telling me the joke is how scared UFC fighters are to discuss the lawsuit against their employers because that doesn't seem like a joke. And it seems way too close to the truth uh, to to be uh, like funny from Fox's perspective.
0: Right. Yeah. People, a bunch of former fighters have filed a lawsuit accusing the UFC of unfair business practices and we're all sitting around wondering if the current employees are going to be too scared to sign on to the lawsuit right there's a there's some symbolism in there or a lesson to be had i'm just not sure what it is yeah anyway it'll be interesting to see how this stuff plays out uh it's it, we've been led to believe this is going to be a long-term thing that it could go on for a couple of years uh although if the UFC decides that it wants to settle i don't know that 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 could potentially, I think, happen next year, but we'll have to see what happens. Uh, ben, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number three. Ben, this week's uh, My Are You Fucking Kidding Me? has to do with the time warp that we all wandered into during Fight Night 58 last weekend when it seemed like we lost the feed to Brazil. And so without any warning at all, Fox just threw on UFC 173. Uh, and just started rolling out the hype vignettes at the beginning of that pay-per-view uh, where TJ Dillashaw was going to fight Henan Barrow and Daniel Cormier was going to fight Dan Henderson. Um, I'm hoping that we lost the entire feed to all UFC programming at that live programming at that point, because otherwise, are you fucking kidding me? Basically you kick it back to the desk in the Fox studios between every fight uh, on every UFC card even if we're running late even if you don't have to but things go dark and you don't even bother to explain it to us are you fucking kidding me you just put on UFC 173 and hope no one will notice
1: yeah that is weird are you fucking kidding me and also the just kind of a little weirdly ironic that then we get the uh the clips from back when and Brow was still the monster who the UFC loved uh and then no and then we turn back to reality where you know Okay, Henan Barrow's a monster, and we're kind of mad at him still. Weird. Uh Well, Chad, my—are you fucking kidding me? This week, uh, a little bit of a different tone to this one, but I don't know if you saw in the first bout of the main card, Antonio Dos Santos Jr. against Daniel Serafian, and they had themselves a pretty good little slobber knocker going. B- a yeah, little bit of yes. a slugfest kind of all over the place, had a, even mixed in a little grappling in there. It was looking like a fun fight in the first round. And then early in the, the second, uh, Dos Santos Jr. goes to block a punch, it looks like. And then when he pulls his hand back, one of his fingers is pointing several degrees in the wrong direction. So what does he do? First, he offers up a little chill dog.
0: Right, the chill then, dog, a then, known practice.
1: <laughs> then goes and just immediately kind of snaps his finger back into place. And then it's like, okay, I'm ready. Let's go. No, you can't do that. So I, I got to say, are you fucking kidding me to a, a couple parts of that? For one thing, shouldn't we have a chill dog rule that can be invoked at, at, at times like this? I mean, give him a second, put his finger back, boom. We can continue the damn fight. Are you fucking kidding
0: me? Are you fucking kidding have me? Have we
1: learned nothing from the lessons of Kimbo Slice? We, we can't have a, a little, little chill dog action there just to keep that fight going. Also, dude, you just snapped your finger back into place
0: and you want to keep fighting? Are you fucking kidding me? These people are nuts, Chad. That does make it seem like uh, that dude's finger is snapping out of place all the time.
1: Yeah, he did not seem that
0: surprised yeah. by it. It was like are... his shoelace came untied. Basically, <laughs> if I look down and
1: see one of my fingers pointing off to the side, uh, that's when like you just see me go totally white. Yeah, and, and pass out immediately
0: yeah. from shock.
1: Yeah, it reminds me once in an IFL fight, I think it was Devin Cole. I saw uh, got his nose broken, like the kind of nose break where like he gets punched and you can see his nose. Move to the other side of his face, like right after the punch lands, and he just reaches up, snaps it back into place, uh, and then is ready to continue fighting.
0: You're not dealing with normal humans no. here. Are you uh, me? You're fucking kidding me. I would like to review your first draft copy of however you write up that you think the Chill Dog should be officiated. Okay. So when you get done with that, shoot me an email. All right. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number three. I hope that you didn't think you were just going to tune in to Fight Night 58 and watch a cadre of interchangeable Brazilian dudes stop each other in a varying degree of weird methodology, because that was not it. No? That was not all. Okay. There was a quote-unquote big announcement to be had as well, and that big announcement is that Quentin Rampage Jackson has signed to return to the UFC, even if he is not legally allowed to do so. (laughs) Oh, this is fun. We're going to try to talk about all this stuff in the time remaining, but I guess my first question for you is rate your own personal level of interest at watching a soon-to-be 37-year-old Rampage Jackson do the damn thing in the 2015 UFC light heavyweight division. Uh, two. Two out of ten? Yeah. You have a 20% interest?
1: Yes. That feels right. I,
0: I would think that anyone who has listened to this podcast for the duration of its lifespan knows how I feel about Quentin Rampage Jackson, so I don't necessarily feel like I need to repeat myself, aside from saying that he is definitely on the short list of most overrated dudes of all time, and even I am slightly more excited than 20% to see him return uh Mostly because he's returning to a totally shallow and bedraggled light heavyweight division, I would say like maybe forty percent.
1: Dude, come on, we've we've been through this already with Rampage. Indeed,
0: and that actually cues up my next question, which is, why would the UFC be interested in in having this guy back? Is it do we just need to cue up the uh, Ted DiBiase theme song? And and just play that throughout our quote unquote big announcement.
1: I mean, I think that this when you when you look at it in money,
0: money, 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 money. Uh,
1: okay, that's actually not bad. Yeah, thank you. Um, go go I didn't ahead. I know you could hit the high notes like that. Uh, when you look at this along with the CM Punk signing, I think it starts to paint a very clear picture. Yeah,
0: it was a big one-two punch, wasn't it? Yeah,
1: like the UFC realizes, you know, okay, we need stars, we need people who like are known names that that fans will come and and remember us and and say oh yeah there's a ufc and this guy's fighting this weekend otherwise it just seems like there's a ufc every weekend and nobody knows who any of these people are and so instead of you know focusing on trying to build new stars because it's hard to do when you just have so many damn events and one right after another uh what do you do you you Shell out the money to buy existing stars, and it seems to actually work. Like Bellator, I think has proven that it kind of works better than we think it will. Like That that Tito Ortiz stuff in Bonner fight—you look at the ratings they did for that, and that's what it tells you is that if if people knew you at one point back in you know the the times when you could still say that MMA was the fastest growing sport in the world and and not get the side eye from people. Uh, if they knew you back in those days, and they still know you, and you still have a name that's worth something, uh, and you can draw viewers, and so the USC says, "All right, that works for them. Let's go get Rampage back. People know Rampage. We'll get him back here, and then maybe when people come around and and see Rampage fight again, they'll realize we got some some new guys who are worth watching too."
0: I find that both shocking and depressing. Yeah, because I because we don't know who those people are. Those two million people that are hungry to tune in to watch Tito Ortiz fight. Uh, Stefan Bonner and assumedly the same people who would tune in to fight Rampage to watch Rampage fight. But we know that they're not fight fans. Right. Because if they were, they would know that they were tuning in to watch a a class B product from from the senior tour.
1: Right. But I mean, if they're if the, the people who know that it's a class B senior tour product are the ones who are just going to watch some UFC Fight Night 58 from Bauerai Brazil anyway. Like, you got those people. You don't have to... And the, those people will still tune in to watch Rampage Jackson so that they can hate on it and complain about it, uh, like, and just to see, like, if he really is uh, as done as they think he is.
0: 0-3 oh, in his last three UFC appearances.
1: But then 3-0 and in oh, and Bellator is, is a money weight over there, Chad.
0: Yeah, and then, which is another thing that, that I wanted to bring up in this point. Before we talk about the legal stuff, which I think we should do here momentarily, but, like, if you're Quentin Rampage Jackson, like do you really want to leave Bellator that badly just because your boy Bjorn left? Like, uh they they queued him up a couple of they teed him up a couple of softball fights to get him back in the win column, and then, you know, he gets this gift decision in over Muhammad Lawal that he didn't deserve, which is uh a pretty good metaphor for his entire career, but like, you're so hard on it. Like why, why would, why would you want to leave that company so badly and come back to the UFC where, where they're probably not maybe, I don't know, maybe they will, but like, you're not going to be the big fish in the, in the, like maybe growing pond in the UFC. You're just going to be another uh, of its vast collection of toys, right? Like, I don't understand why he'd want to do that so badly.
1: Name me an employer. Rampage Jackson has worked for that. He liked, when he was working for them, right for the and entire time. every
0: single business relationship that he's ever had that we know of ends in scorched earth and smoke spewing into the sky. which is brings up the question of why the UFC would want the guy back, and I guess it's just for money. But So we have a situation here where we can't figure out exactly what Rampage wants, besides, I guess, money. We can't figure out what the UFC wants, besides, I guess, money. And then we have this elephant in the room, which I suppose we should talk about right now, and that's whether or not he is still under contract to Bellator, because it seems like there's going to be a legal battle over this. Rampage Jackson believes that he's terminated his contract and that Bellator didn't meet the... uh, it's contractual obligations to him. And, uh, you know, from a labor management relations standpoint, if we're going to deal with these guys as independent contractors, which we are, I'm all for the fighter having that power and the ability to terminate his own contract. But it does it does seem like we're going to get into a, a, a legal thing here, which, again, makes me wonder if Quentin Rampage Jackson is worth it for the UFC to, like, get into a tiff.
1: Yeah. And especially at a time when you're dealing with a different lawsuit, like you just basically went and opened a second front on this lawsuit war that you're, you're going to end up fighting. Uh, seems like going to be kind of a busy time for, to be a Zufa lawyer. But I mean, like you, I wonder, is Rampage Jackson worth it? But also, you know, wouldn't this be kind of a sad state of affairs? Because Rampage Jackson doesn't have a whole lot of time left in no, his career.
0: He's 36. We'll turn 37 next June.
1: Yeah. And, you know, hasn't been the best about staying in shape and taking care of his body, like the Randy Couture kind of approach to, to longevity. So it's hard to think that Rampage Jackson is still going to be a quality fighter, like into his 40s. Right. Uh, so it'd be kind of sad if this is the way it ends for him, like in a court battle that just sits him down for a long time as everybody tries to decide you know, who he can fight for and who he can't. But, I, I mean, if, if you're the UFC and you're going to do all this to get Rampage, I mean, for one, like... I went back and looked up a column I wrote when he left the UFC in January of 2013 and was headed to Bellator. Called Joe
0: Silva a little bitch on, on Twitter?
1: <laughs> I don't... I did, oh, you're saying Rampage called Joe Silva yeah, a Yeah, not bitch. you. Rampage okay. did. I was confused. Come on. I was confused there for a moment because uh, Joe Silva and I have always had a friendly relationship. But, uh, you know, and then I was just kind of pointing out, like, you you realize that this guy, every business relationship he has ends badly. Like, yeah. he, he, he's the guy who always has has a story about his crazy ex, you know? And, like, you look at the common denominator in that situation, you realize that it's him. Uh, and then to see this happening this way, you know, what a rare pleasure to be proven right uh, by the way th- shit unfolds. But if you're the UFC, you got to know it's not going to be too long before he's back on there on Twitter talking about how UFC stands for You Fight Cheap. And you're going to go through all that, go through a legal battle just to get that guy back? Like, he, he brings that much new attention to you? I mean, maybe, maybe it does, maybe the same way that the CM Punk thing feels like it's worth it to them, but I don't know, man, I I do have a hard time seeing it. It seems a little like short-term thinking kind of desperation mode, like we need immediate views, we need somebody right now who can can bring in a lot of viewers and a lot of pay-per-view sales, like instead of like kind of looking within our own ranks, which are rich with talent when you look at it, uh, we're just going to, you know pull out the checkbook and see who can we buy right now, kind of New York Yankee style um, to get us back where we want to be.
0: Let's put on the tinfoil hats for one minute because the timing of this is, is strange to say the least. It seems weird to go out and try to poach uh, a top or not prospect, but top uh, piece of of promotional merchandise from your top competitor uh, just a week or so after this antitrust lawsuit has been filed against you. Um, Is it, I know that there's been some chatter about this on the internet. Is this just outlandish to think that the UFC could pick this fight with Bellator in court, knowing that it will lose and then can turn around as part of its antitrust defense and say, of course, we're not a monopoly. We just got into this bitter contract dispute over Quentin rampage Jackson, and we didn't win. So like, how could, how could there be no competition in the marketplace if Bellator just uh, beat us in court? You know, it is tempting
1: to kind of draw that connection. I mean, who knows? Maybe that there's something to there. But it, it seems like the timing would be incredibly difficult to pull off.
0: Right. It's also weird that you would put the guy on TV with a video package. Like, if, you, if that was your point, like, you were going to lose a lawsuit over Quentin Rampage Jackson, I would think you would kind of want to do that quietly instead of, like, producing a Rampage's back vignette that you put on Fox Sports 1. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, you also...
1: You would have to, you know, the the lawsuit gets filed uh, last week, and then a few days later, you're able to announce Rampage signing. I mean, that's stuff that's going to take a long time to really come together. Uh, and, you know, for like he has this 45 day window. He says that in his contract that a lot that for a dispute between himself and Bellator, where if he says something's wrong in the contract and they don't fix it within 45 days, and then then he can piece out, which is what he says he did. Uh, so, like this would all have to it would be difficult to predict exactly when you were going to be able to make a move like this, especially if you're trying to coordinate it with a move that is being made against you by okay. other people. Like it would just be really, the timing would be really, really tough to pull off
0: at the same time though. If you go after rampage Jackson and you get him away from Bellator, I suppose, you know, and then are, are you giving the other side in this antitrust lawsuit, like just more ammunition against you? Because like basically one of their things is that like, uh you want to crush the competition and you, you engage in all of these like pernicious practices. Like if you do steal away your, your contend your competitors top, uh you know, draw while the, while Bellator still believes it has rampage under contract, then don't, don't you just give more fire to the, to the people who are trying to sue you?
1: Yeah. Or do you open the door to a, a tortious interference claim? uh If it turns out that you were, uh, trying to deal with rampage while he was still in a contract to bellator i mean that is it does seem to be a lot of tricky stuff and again uh what do you win in at the end of the day you win we rampage all
0: win. we all win man we get to see quentin rampage jackson come back to the ufc and show up in, in in questionable shape and cruise to a tepid decision win or loss against somebody in the UFC. So I you know see, we can all be excited about that.
1: I think you are, you are a little bit too dismissive of Rampage. I think Rampage is one of these guys where, like, if he had had wanted what we wanted for him, like, if he had wanted to be an awesome MMA fighter all the time rather than just kind of, like, in, in brief spurts when he felt like it, Uh, and hadn't, you know, constantly changed his mind and said, no, now I want to be an actor. Now I want to be a boxer. I want to be in Bellator. I, I want to be back in the UFC. If he had just like stuck to one thing and said, I want to be the best MMA fighter in the world. You know, I'm not saying necessarily he becomes the best MMA fighter in the world, but I mean, I think he, he turns out a lot better than you think. I think he had a whole lot of talent and that a lot of it was just like, he was his own worst enemy at times.
0: I'm not sure that makes it any better, but I understand what you're saying. Uh, all right, well, let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Uh, ben, uh, you know, from from a discussion of Rampage Jackson into a discussion of the two guys who may actually be the best fighters in the world. I'm just saying 12 days from now we get to watch John Jones and Daniel Cormier fight each other at UFC 182. The undefeated challenger against the basically undefeated champion, uh, the number one pound for pound fighter in the world against, I think, inarguably his biggest test to date uh, in a fight where two guys legitimately don't like each other. I'm just saying Fuck yeah.
1: Nice.
0: Just saying. I'm just saying.
1: Well, Chad, I'm just saying. I don't know if you heard the comments uh, before this fight from Leoto Machida, who compared winning your first title as a fighter to losing your virginity.
0: Oh, yeah. I did hear that. Yeah. yeah.
1: Now, either Leoto Machida had a very different experience losing his virginity than you know most people, uh, or that's a bad analogy. Because I'm just saying, when he won the title uh, and took it off of uh, Rashad Evans at the start of the Machida era, um, did he have to have a a weird, awkward conversation with Rashad Evans' dad first? Did he? Did he also, after that, find it difficult to look Rashad Evans' dad in the eye? Uh, Did they go get frozen yogurt afterwards? I'm just saying, I, I don't see how it could possibly be like losing your virginity. Also. I thought we all kind of agreed that losing your virginity was a uh, kind of in retrospect a not a pleasant experience. Right. Right.
0: I'm just saying, just saying. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to uh, preview all of the awesome stuff that's going to be happening at uh, January 3rd's UFC 182. That'll be the last co-main event podcast of the year. Uh, As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out.
1: So you're thinking champagne for the last one of the year?
0: Yeah, we will just pop, bottles? pop some bottles over here.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, Probably recorded about 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock in the morning. Uh, just, you know, getting real bad champagne headaches and let it rip,
1: man. Nice. That sounds
0: awesome. You ever, I've always wondered about rappers and the people. I was talking about how they're drinking champagne all the time. Drinking champagne is terrible. Yeah, no, It's like one of the worst things you can do. It's a bad idea. It's Especially if you're drinking it like an inappropriate